When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. In ancient times, the most impressive monuments, greatest pyramids and superstructures were lauded and listed as wonders of the world. And like days of the week and deadly sins, there were always seven of them. More recent Magnificent Sevens have included impressive buildings such as Machu Picchu and the Taj Mahal. Or on other lists, engineering wonders, bridges, canals, sewage systems or awe-inspiring natural phenomena such as the Grand Canyon and the Great Barrier Reef. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast. And the guest I'm asking today is the environmentalist, author, journalist and activist George Monbiot, who has long been at the forefront of ecological warriors and warriors, warning us that the end of the world is nigh from climate change, pollution, overpopulation, poisoned oceans, bleached coral reefs, deforestation, degradation of the soil and overall spoiling of the natural world. Any number of existential problems which mean one way or another, if we don't mend our ways, life on Earth, human life at any rate, is going to become well-nigh impossible. So, George, inevitably there must be quite a few natural phenomena you might have been tempted to include as wonders of the world, but uh, might depress you to include as they're so much at risk. Uh, but I, I remember from uh, interviewing you before, although you are um, very much a, a Cassandra warning us of the horrors to come, uh, you, you maintain quite a cheery outlook in life. Is that because you think there are solutions to these problems? Uh, we just haven't got on with them yet. No, I, I just live in a bubble of self-deception. <laughs> <laughs> but you wanted to prick our bubble, you know, the world's humanity's yeah. bubble that we you know I we've know. got things we should be worrying about. I know, but you can't live in it all the time, you know, so 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 yeah I sort of split it in two really you know there's my public life where I talk about this stuff and my private life where I endeavour to forget it as best as I can yes um, it, it does sometimes intrude and have you always been worried or, or obviously interested in the, the natural world I, I think did you study zoology at Oxford was that was that your subject I did yeah and I did and long before that I was just an obsessed child I was completely um, swallowed up by the natural world from when I was really small. It was just everything that fascinated me was outdoors. Yeah. And um, and so I spent my my every spare moment I had either by myself or with my friends just roaming about in the woods and discovering things and yes, watching stuff and learning about it. Yeah. But but you it was just was it just zoology you studied at university? Would would you must have taken in some. You know, botany and uh, bio biology generally. It, it's re it's it's really frustrating how narrow the the courses were. I mean, I think it was a mistake going to Oxford actually. But you know, your your teachers say, "Oh, you can get into Oxford," yeah. so 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 you do. But but they split biology into zoology, which is animals, and botany, which is plants, which is kind of daft. One because you can't really study the one without the other but yeah. also because there are many other kingdoms um, um, in, uh, within the um, grand frame of life such as fungi and bacteria and all sorts of other things sure. archaea um, which don't fit into either category and um, and I'm just fascinated by anything yes. alive and so um, it it was it was a bit frustrating and, and you know, just the narrowness of higher education in general yeah. you know, I also wanted to know about history and philosophy and and every amazing subject, but you know, you come out knowing less less than you did when you went in. Yes, it's odd. It's, it's a very, um, I would say, it's a British, maybe even an English uh, um, education mm. system problem. And mm. in America, it's mm. quite normal to cover a whole range of subjects, and uh, you mm. major in zoology, but you might have done all those other subjects here and there. Yeah. But uh, we like to concentrate on things. I, so I took a strategic decision you know, when I was a kid. I thought, well, you know, I can I can teach myself the humanities roughly, mm. um, but I can't teach myself science. So I'll have to do a science degree. Okay. 
And I think that was a good choice, but it's still frustrating. I, I should admit I said at a lower level. In my, I did zoology A-level, uh, but it wasn't biology, simply so I could have the rest of the time to do maths, uh, which was uh, right. <laughs> sort of, in, a, yeah. in a sort of way an easy option. But uh, that's not necessarily going to mean I'm going to understand all of your wonders. Uh, so um, some are perhaps predictable uh, from you, but others uh, less so, at least less predictable mm. by me. So what, what is your first wonder? So I want to talk about complexity theory Mm. Um, and complexity theory. I mean, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating branch of science in its own right and branch of mathematics. But it also describes pretty well all the wonders of the world. Um, It's sort of encapsulated Mm. in it because all the systems on which we depend for our survival um, and indeed all the sort of large scale systems which we create albeit accidentally, um, fall into the category of complex systems. And this is something we're never really taught at school. Um, you know, in, in, if anything, um, they try to explain the world as if it were composed of simple systems, like a sort of wash basin where you've got water coming in from the tap and mm. water going out through the plug hole. And if you got more water coming in through the tap than going out, then the level in the wash basin will rise. Okay. But actually, the world works in a profoundly, entirely different way to that. And and the systems which, which govern our lives, whether it's the atmosphere, the oceans, the forests, um, the soil, which we'll come on to yes. in a bit, or financial systems, or the global food system, or global insurance systems, or indeed the human brain, yes. the human body, all these are actually complex systems. And what complex systems do is they... They have billions of random interactions between lots of components. And you can't predict the outcome of what's going to come out the back of that system just by looking at all its components in isolation. Because those random um, interactions, bizarrely and weirdly, they self-organize. They create a self-organized system, which then has properties called adaptive and emergent properties, um, which, which almost make you look make you think you're looking at an in- a form of intelligent life, yeah. even when it's a global financial system, which should, obviously it can't be. Um, and um, and and be- because they 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 sort of stabilise themselves, they regulate themselves within a certain range of conditions. And um, but then, if they're subject to too much stress, too much of external pressure or internal dynamics going in the wrong way. All those self-regulating properties, which sort of create an equilibrium state, can suddenly and disastrously push them past a critical threshold, and they collapse into an entirely different equilibrium state. And 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 this, you know, as an environmentalist, I've come to realise that, you know, what what we're looking at when we talk about climate breakdown or environmental breakdown or ecological breakdown, any of the issues that I'm obsessed with is not a sort of linear, gradual process. It's a ramping up of stress, which ramps up and ramps up. And if we're not careful, that will then push that system past the critical threshold. And a classic example, which we've already seen, is, is, is the US Dust Bowl yeah. in, in the 1930s, where you had... Um, so endless low-level assaults on the ske- on on the soil, you know, ploughing and ploughing and damage and damage, and it, you know, it's sort of more and more harm. And then suddenly, severe drought strikes. And when severe drought strikes, the rate of erosion rises six thousand fold yeah. in a degraded soil because it's sort of it's lost its resilience. It's become a fragile system, and suddenly it just collapses effectively overnight. Would it Would it be too... I'm frightened of being too simplistic in, in <laughs> saying anything in this conversation at this point. But is this a bit like talking about a tipping point? Uh, that, exactly. Yeah. So, so a it, tipping point yeah. absolutely describes passing a critical threshold in a complex system. Yeah. But I can't let that, that figure go by. You say 6,000% 6, was the... 6,000 fold. 600,000 percent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it's not really. It's not just it's getting a little bit dustier. It's suddenly gone from. <laughs> but, I mean, it was it was starting from perhaps getting rid of buffalo and replacing with cows, uh, irrigating fields which had been dry normally. You're moving things around so much, and it suddenly mm. goes horribly wrong. It suddenly flips, and and in fact, remarkably, even though complex systems were scarcely understood at the time, there was a U.S. government report in 1937, which precisely captured how they operate. It says, "It said one man cannot stop the wind from blowing, 
but one man can start it. And yeah. basically meaning, you know, it takes just a very small perturbation. This yeah. is, they talk about the butterfly's wing, you know. Yeah. If, if your system has reached its critical threshold, it takes just a little nudge, pushes it over and the whole thing collapses. But then, and they exactly captured this, um, it's subject to what's called hysteresis. And hysteresis in this context means that... <laughs> I'm keeping up here. I'm galloping behind you. Yeah. <laughs> hysteresis, yes. So it means that the energy required to reverse that collapse is far greater than the energy required to cause it. Yes. So you can think of a complex system as being like a boulder on top of a mountain wedged in place with a little pebble. Yeah. It doesn't take much energy to knock that pebble out of place. But if that boulder rolls down to the bottom of the mountain, yes. you, know, you need a huge yeah. amount of energy to push it back up. Well, can, so, can I push you into... Well, I was going to yeah. say in 2008, the financial system very nearly collapsed mm. as a result of a remarkably small perturbation, which was a sub subprime crisis in, in, in the United States, which, you know, in terms of the scale of global financial flows was really pretty small. Yeah. But it took globally trillions of dollars of bailouts to push it back into the safe space, even though it hadn't actually quite passed its critical threshold. I mean, if they hadn't intervened in time, it would have done very quickly. But but even though it hadn't passed it, there was still hysteresis involved and it required a much bigger bailout than, than the problem, than the immediate problem which caused it. All right, well, not, not to make this too depressing, this bit of the conversation, but uh, so, but there's, presumably this does relate to things like global warming, where a one, two, three degree rise worldwide, all sorts of things happen. The, the, the glaciers melt, mm. uh, the Gulf Stream stops mm. bringing warm air and water across to... Mm. So we, we in the British Isles get freezing cold, the Sahara gets dry. We have another dust bowl in America, and we are um, well. I don't know how we put it. We're stuffed, roundly kippered. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So what you've done there is very neatly. You've described three of the complex systems that the atmospheric complex system interacts with. Yeah. And so what what you've described is is basically the domino effect of complex systems. That if one tips, yeah. it tips others, and it causes this cascading series of, of collapses. Now now what's very interesting, there's some very there's some fascinating maths which allows you effectively to predict whether a system is fragile or resilient. And and it doesn't it's sort of quite chilling really, because it doesn't really matter what the system is. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're looking at a polar ice cap or or you're looking at a, a at the global food system. Um, by the values of its mathematical components, you can see whether it's mm. going to survive or whether it could easily be tipped, whether it's coming close to its tipping point. So this relates to an, another term and, I probably and, don't understand yeah. properly, uh, structuralism, where you, <laughs> you look at lots of different systems and things and they have the same sort of structure across lots of different exactly. things. <laughs> that. That's exactly right. And and this is, I mean, this is so, I, I find this really fascinating in, in that um, <clears throat> you, you've got, I mean, complex systems, are, are, they're sort of very difficult. I mean, you can't under, ever understand them in their entirety, even using the complex system we call the human brain. Mm. Um, in fact, the human brain is too complex for the human brain to comprehend. <laughs> but there are these these sort of consistent principles which which describe how they operate. And and one of them, which is sort of highly relevant to understanding, you know, whether your financial system is 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 coming um, close to that tipping point, is is looking at the the size of the nodes. So so you can imagine it like a sort of old fashioned fishing net, and you've got these sort of nodes which are where the bits of twine are knotted, yeah. and then you've got the twine which connects them. That's the links, the size of the nodes and the strength of the connection between them. And if you've got a small number of very large nodes and they're very strongly connected. That is a fragile system, and and it's in severe danger of tipping. Whereas if 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 you've got lots of nodes um, which are weakly connected and they're not synchronized in their behaviour, then it's more likely to be resilient. Yeah. And the sort of tragedy of humankind is that all the things we do to make our little corner of business or whatever it is we're doing better, to make it more efficient undermine the resilience of the system as a whole because it you know by sort of networking ourselves with other people by by sort of cutting out the redundancy in in the things we do we 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 sort of break down the circuit breakers and the backup systems and the modularity in the system all of which are essential yeah. for preserving its overall resilience so there's a kind of paradox that you know all the things which sort of seem to make sense at the individual level 
collectively are a car crash. So I have we been doing this forever since since whenever we developed a human brain it, it's it's almost as though you know that thing in the bible you know in genesis you know you mustn't eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge <laughs> and once we did that that meant we we're expelled from eden or we've ex- not expe- been expelled but have we we've destroyed eden by mucking around with things do you think is that does it go f- as yeah. far back as that uh, as when we've started ruining things well, I mean, it's certainly there was never a state of grace. You know, there, there is a sort of fantasy entertained by some environmentalists that, you know, there's there was a good time and mm. we need to get back to that good time when humans lived in harmony with, with yeah. the living world. And it just didn't exist. In fact, there, there's a paleontologist whose, whose work I study and it's, it's uh, I've followed who's um, who says who says to archaeologists, you know, don't bother trying to find the archaeological evidence for when humans first turned up on a particular island or a particular continent. Mm. You know, it's very sparse, the evidence. You might find the odd chip flint or yeah. fire site. You just have to look at the paleontology. In other words, the animals, the remains of the animals, because what you'll see is that you have these huge animals, yeah. you know, and, and the default state of all ecosystems is a megafauna, like giant elephants yeah. and enormous lions and things. And they're sort of tripping along quite happily for thousands of years, and then suddenly, boof, they fall off a cliff. That's when the people turned up. And some of those complex systems are, as we've talked about, natural systems. And as well as flocks of birds, we could talk about shoals of fish, we talk about insect swarms, and so on. But We've made some of these complex systems ourselves. The financial economy and the internet are complex systems. So what is your second wonder, George? And and the second wonder is itself a complex system. You won't be entirely surprised to hear, but it's a very particular one, and it's called soil. And... um, and soil is something we we so badly take for granted. Mm. You know, this is where ninety nine percent of our calories come from, and yet we treat it like dirt. Um, and we all right. And and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what is what is soil? Because if it was in that old game, animal animal mineral mm. vegetable, it, it's it's obviously got those three things and and perhaps more. You know, you have just asked the crucial question, what is soil, which which most people don't ask. Most people just sort of think, well, it's the stuff which plants stand up in, yes. isn't it? It turns out it's a biological structure. It's like a wasp's nest or a beaver dam, but massively more complex. It's built by the creatures that live in it. Yeah. And if it weren't for them, there would be no soil at all. And And so at the micro level, you've got unbelievable numbers of bacteria which use the carbon in the soil to make glue. They make these polymers out of the carbon. Yeah. And they stick the little mineral particles together with the glue to make chambers for themselves to live in. And and it, and it's quite amazing. You know, even if you air dry soil, inside those chambers, it's still 98% humidity because they've just sort of created this perf- these little capsules right. which, which are perfectly suited to them. So they've got water in there, they've got oxygen in there. And then the the um, tiny little soil animals, which are obviously much bigger than the bacteria, they then turn those capsules into their own living spaces and they sort of build their labyrinths and catacombs out of the bacterial yeah. ones. And then the the giant animals in the soil, like ants <laughs> and worms, um, they then build those into bigger structures of their own. Yeah. And it's fractally scaled, which means that whatever magnification you, you, you look at it with, it's it's got the same structure. And that gives it this incredible resilience. So when you're not degrading it and hammering it like they did before the Dust Bowl, um, it stays on the land. Whereas, you know, if it were just a sort of mass of stuff, which people have long assumed it was, it would just be swept off the ground by the first rainstorm which came along. And it's only because it's got, you know, it's been built, structured, it's stuck together with mortar effectively mm-hmm. by all these creatures all doing their own thing, that it actually stays on the land at all. All right. So, uh, yes, you've, you've, I suppose you're telling us or reminding us that there are all these things in it, so the... Uh microscopic level and you've taken up as far as I suppose earthworms and then there's bigger animals mm-hmm. burrowing it as well but uh, let's not forget the mineral aspect as well because obviously soil varies from place to place mm-hmm. um, and is that just a I mean is, is that just because it's there you know there's that's what the rock was there that that broke yeah. down to fall that soil but but some's more fertile or you can grow more stuff in it than mm-hmm. than others so so yeah it, it reflects the geology too um but the more we understand about the soil, the more we begin to see that its fertility is not just a function of, of its 
its chemistry, but also of its biology, because the bacteria and the fungi act effectively as the brokers between plants and the physical substrate. So they, um, they're they the ones who deliver minerals to the plant. There's, this, there's these extraordinary symbiotic relationships. In fact, we, we, we can't really understand life on Earth until we grasp this amazing thing that of all the sugars plants make through photosynthesis, they dump between 10 and 40% of them directly into the soil. Mm. Yeah, and, and, and before doing so, they transform loads of those sugars into these unbelievably complex comp- uh, chemical compounds yeah. with enormous names and lots of numbers in them. And and what they're doing, so that with the complex com- compounds, as, as a root hair pushes into a lump of soil, it releases those to talk to very particular bacterial species which it wants to wake up because the bacteria basically exist in a sort of limbo until someone comes along and wakes them up it's like sleeping beauty and so they they kiss them with these with, with these chemical messages they're like talking to them um and the only particular ones they want to wake up some of them will harm them some of them are very beneficial having woken them up they flood them with sugar they, yeah. they just give them this massive meal sugar rush. and the bacteria mul- yeah. exactly they multiply massively around the root hairs so that in a gram of soil around the root hair, you can get a billion bacteria. And and then they do all these amazing things. So first of all, they deliver minerals to the plants, but they also deliver growth hormones and various other chemicals which are really useful to the plant. They also fight off pathogens. So they form a sort of defensive ring around the root against the bacteria and fungi and things which the plant doesn't like. And... um, and and they um, uh, um, have all, uh, also fire up the plants def- uh, the plant's own immune system, yeah. um, and so they allow it to fight off pests even way above the ground, attacking its leaves. And when you look at that, you realise that that zone of soil immediately surrounding the root hair operates almost identically to the human gut. Yeah, it is in effect the plant's external sure. gut. Yeah, um, and it can't really function without it. And so. Um, and amazingly, of the 1,000 or so phyla of bacteria, the major groups of bacteria, there are four, um, the same four, dominate both the human gut and, and the soil zone ar- ar- around the plant root. And these are the sort of bacteria which are kind of pre-adapted to cooperate yes. with, with multicellular life forms. And, and you get, I mean, the, the parallels are really uncanny um, between some of the stuff going on in those two completely different places. Because there's a lot of... Uh interest at the moment in in the content of our gut as in its effect on mm. health uh, physical and and mental even and even mm. slimming and all, all sorts of things or, or getting overweight absolutely well uh, and in a way i'd like to just leave that there and say that is a wonder of the world but i suppose i have to ask you well what's <laughs> happening to the soil around the world is it in a thriving state yeah. and can we rely upon it forever uh. to do this or are there pressures and damages uh, damage being done to it I mean, we're so we so disrespect it you know it's like so many of the natural wonders of the world we we take them for granted and and in this case you know we're in serious trouble you know even if you were to disregard all the other impacts bearing upon the the agricultural system and all the other things that we need to survive soil erosion alone this is really dire you know in in, in quite a lot of countries now 70 percent of the soils are severely degraded and, and just can't continue to sustain reasonable levels of crop production anymore and you know you can trash your, your soil in a year but it takes a thousand years for yeah. a centimeter of soil to fall. and is this being trashed because uh, we have used too many pesticides or too much fertilizer we've extracted too much from it is it just being blown away because we don't have the the hedges and and tree roots to to keep it there what what, what are they what are the factors we have to yes. worry about <laughs> the, the short answer is yes <laughs> yeah. um, all of those so, yeah. um, yeah, all of those. I mean, um, ploughing often in inappropriate conditions, leaving it bare um, when the crops aren't on it, so the rain and wind can sweep it away. Um, pesticides, you're absolutely right, are really can be devastating to the life of the soil, and that can cause a sort of e- ecological collapse within it. And also, yeah, as you say, fertilisers. You put too much nitrite, nitrate fertiliser on, that can cause the bacteria to burn through the carbon, which, of course, is the cement holding the whole thing mm. together. And, and, and the soil structure can collapse. And paradoxically, if you over-fertilise soil, 
plants can't get enough minerals because because they, the, the the bacteria and well also there isn't the oxygen and the flow through the soil anyway. Well, you touch on something there because you are you know predicting doom and and gloom and disaster, uh, but as you say, there have there have been many centuries of people predicting disaster. Uh, you know, mm. the, the the population of of England, if it goes beyond ten million or something, was predicted as to be a, a disaster. Mm. And these and so the. The, the refusal of people perhaps to take on board some of your worries is to say, well, look, there'll be a way of solving these problems and uh, mm. let's not panic. In, in a few, you know, 10 years' time, we'll think of something else to extract more from the soil. I think panic's quite healthy at this stage of the proceedings. <laughs> um, um, I mean, one thing I'd say is that, you know, there was a great decline of, in hunger from the 1960s until 2014. Mm. But since 2015, um, chronic global hunger has been rising steadily. It's probably going to spike considerably this year. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and the predictions are that it's going to keep rising. And so, you know, that's even with a huge amount of food production. You know, it's still the case that, that um, there's plenty of food, but there's systemic instability in, in, in global food production and trade. Mm. Um, and that's only going to be exacerbated by in, environmental crisis. Well, uh, what, what is your, what is the essential problem here? Is it either too many people or the solutions for providing food for the people that, that we have and the, and the people of the future that the ways of producing the food are just too damaging and another way has to be found mm. well i mean there is uh, there is i, I mean there's a, a great food surplus but a huge amount of that is fed to livestock i mean roughly 50 percent of all the calories yeah. that farmers grow are fed to livestock which are then fed to us and that's just a really inefficient way yes. of getting food into humans um and and so you know there's like you know we need what 2,000 odd calories a day and we have 5,400 calories per person mm. being grown but loads of that goes into animals or um, is used for biofuels which I think is one of the most decadent things you could do is like literally burning food mm -hmm. um, or um, or is is wasted but you know food waste actually is quite difficult to deal with but you could more easily I think deal with those things um, so you know we could get by with less um, but um, we would have to change the system. Um, I think there's lots of really interesting new, new techniques. I mean, part of it is to take considerable amounts of food out of the farming system altogether and produce protein and fat through precision fermentation, through brewing, mm -hmm. basically, in factories. Much smaller environmental impact. Um, it can be tailored much better than the human diet um, and you know far less cruelty and the rest of it so not everyone will will immediately embrace this idea but um but i think it's got enormous potential i was the first person on earth incidentally outside the laboratory to eat a pancake made from microbial protein all right and weirdly it tasted just like yes. a pancake <laughs> so in, yeah. so that may be the solution that's coming down the line so instead of having herds of cattle beef cattle You'll have a fact, in a sense, a factory uh, where you're putting yeah. whatever you put in the beginning, but it it spins yeah. protein uh, that is yeah. tasty. You might have to add in some fat yeah. or something for flavour, and mm. you might even pretend it's meaty, where you probably won't even have to do that. But that's in a way, yeah. I can yeah. see that could be this. But it has a slightly bleak feel to it, doesn't it? That sort of we're now yeah. going to sustain well, ourselves with factory produced gubbins uh, it, it does but if, if you if you if, if you were to imagine it the other way around if you were to say right okay we start you know just picture we've already got a world where we produce our protein and fat that way and then i came along and said and i'll tell you what let's get it from animals instead yeah. right and we'll sort of yeah. domesticate a few of these animals and we'll slaughter 75 billion of them a year and we'll All like right. stun them and cut their throats okay. and skin them and stuff i think people would think that was that was a bleaker way of doing it Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, 
Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. What's your third wonder? So the third one, um, again, sort of ties in a bit with these two, which is um, this um, phenomenon called trophic cascades. Um, And this is um, an an ecological uh, observation, which is uh, in certain circumstances, I mean, not not in all um, ecosystems, um, you get this amazing thing that a predator can drive the whole ecosystem process. So a trophic cascade, trophic means pertaining to eating, feeding and being fed upon. And we all know what a cascade is. It's it's an ecological process that tumbles from the sort of top of the ecosystem, if you see the predators at the mm. top, right the way down to the bottom. And and the classic example, which um, you know has, has got some traction recently, is what happened when they reintroduced wolves to the Yellowstone National Park, yeah. um, which was pretty in a pretty shocking state up to that point. It was really overgrazed. There weren't many trees growing. Um, they brought in a relatively small number of wolves. And within a few years, you know, from between sort of 1995 and, well, in the next 10 years or so, everything began to change in quite a dramatic way. So trees began springing up where there weren't trees before. Um, um, a huge number of species seemed to benefit. What had happened was that the um, the deer, which were in so far too populated, really, in, in, in the Yellowstone Park, because there weren't any large predators, mm. or there weren't any wolves at any rate, um, the, the, the deer um, started avoiding places where they could easily be ambushed and caught. Mm. And so um, in those places, the trees would come back because they weren't being overgrazed. Um, you created a much, much more of a mosaic of habitats. Mm. Some places you have trees, some places not, some places a bit of both. Um, you then had um, um, lots of creatures eating the remains of the deer, which had been killed by the wolves. So you got a great increase in like bald eagles and 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 the bears benefited from it, and various other scavengers, ravens and things. Um, as the trees came back, the songbirds came back, um, and so you saw great proliferation of birds there. Um, the wolves um, um, k- tended to kill coyotes. Um, because they're quite territorial in that way, and that allowed the smaller predators then to proliferate. So the more sort of stoats and weasels eating the rodents and stuff. Um, and um, and as the trees came back along the riverbanks, the beavers were able to expand because they eat trees and they use them to make their dams. And the beavers, like the wolves, are ecosystem engineers. Mm-hmm. And so um, and what they created in the rivers was sort of these pools and then riffle sections, much more diversity within the rivers, which then allowed more fish and more water birds yeah. and more otters and amphibians and the rest of it. Um, and and even um, on some accounts, um, the wolves changed the, the behavior of the rivers yeah. because uh, the returning trees stabilized the river banks. And so this sort of really, what seemed like a small intervention, just bringing back a few wolves, yeah. It, it it sort of cascaded down through the whole system and changed everything. There's a little film you can see that uh, explains that, does bringing wolves changes the course of the rivers. That's right. Well, let, let yes, me let yes. me move on on in that conversation. Now, that was Yellowstone Park. It's a big place, America. There is room, uh, although it did cause problems in the surrounding, the various states that are there or bordering on it. Uh, now, some people would make the same argument for, for Britain, maybe just Scotland, but certainly the problems that you started by describing, 
the deer population of this country is enormous, much bigger mm. than it ever used to be. And of yeah, course, it's, yeah. that affects the trees. And some people say, well, we should reintroduce wolves, which we haven't had for mm. several centuries. And other people throw up their hands in horror because they say, well, look, you, yeah. you have one fox that goes into a suburban back garden and, mm. and starts pulling a nappy off a, of a baby and <laughs> everyone goes crazy and gets wants to eliminate. So do you yeah. think there ever be a possibility to reintroduce wolves, which we had in this country until no one's quite sure up until exactly what point but until two or three centuries yeah. ago they were just a natural yeah. part of the yeah. environment do you think it's ever mm. going to be possible I, I i think so and i hope so i mean it is i mean they're they're coming back across most of europe i mean even the netherlands which is more densely populated than the uk and hasn't got anywhere like the scottish yeah. highlands has got wolves back and it's not a big deal yes. you know it's you know, people are very afraid of wolves, but disproportionately so. I mean, you know, there, there, there might be some danger, but it's really small by comparison to the other hazards we face. And obviously, we've got to make like a social decision. You know, do we want to increase this risk, which might then reduce many other risks, like hitting a deer with your car, for instance? Um, <laughs> well, good, good luck with that argument. I can, I can see what you mean. But <laughs> if there were, you know, a child has been savaged by a wolf, but another child wasn't injured uh, at another place with a, a deer strike. So mm. you, you can argue that. I mean, it's, it's, it's worth... It's worth noting that in North America, more people get killed by vending machines than by wolves <laughs> because they, they shake them to, to get the money out yeah. and, uh, <laughs> with predictable consequences. But anyway, that, yeah. so I've obviously uh, linked that to the, the, the British, uh, you know, the, because we're, that's where we are. Um, but, I, mm. but this would apply to anywhere in the world where the predator species have been eliminated, mm. uh, which, as you mentioned in, in, under a previous wonder, uh, tends to happen as uh, humanity yeah. requires more and more space. And, yeah. and if you want herds of yeah. um, sheep or even herds of cattle, I suppose, if if there are wolves around, you have to have people there to to ward off the the. The wolves. It's it's much easier without wolves at the moment. You can have your sheep on the the Scottish and Welsh hills without worrying about that. That's been a big plus. Farmers would see it for these centuries and probably made it a lot easier. They would, but I'd say that the folk tales have got it the wrong way around. You know that the the sheep are the villain and the wolves are the heroes. Um, I mean, the sheep have done yeah. more ecological damage to this country than all the building that, that's ever happened here. So well, fewer of those and more wolves. Yes, well, I, we perhaps haven't got time to go in, into all that, but you know, the, yes, sheep sheep eat a lot of stuff and uh, mm. to sweep through the, the the they they change the environment as well as as much as the deer do, or, or probably um, uh, more yeah, so in yeah. a way. All right, well, I, I think uh, uh, I think we've at least sketched in the, the idea of trophic cas cascades, and we might see the effect on uh, the British countryside if uh, ever we reintroduce wolves. I think that people are not quite brave enough yet to reintroduce lynx, who are about twice the size of an ordinary tabby cat, but that strikes fear into the heart of everybody to have them... I mean, it is amazing, isn't it? Because, you know, if, if, if when India fails to look after its tigers, as we would yes. wish, you know, we, we get really upset about that. And, you yeah. know, we, we're not even prepared to have... That's the, I've argued that a lot with you know, people. Oh, you can't yeah. reduce wolves. Or if we, they were still there, there'd be, there'd be a campaign yeah. to keep them. But because they, they went... Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. This is a huge conservation milestone. This is the first licence ever submitted to reintroduce links on a trial basis to the UK. This is a life-size cuts out of a lynx so that's actually how big a real life lynx is so they're not that big um, are lynx dangerous to people so lynx live all over the world and in human history a healthy wild lynx has never ever ever attacked a human anywhere in the world okay number four what's your what's your uh, fourth wonder so number four is another nice obscure topic, um, which is the emian. Yes, okay. And um, <laughs> the emian, yeah. otherwise known as the Ipswichian, um, was the previous interglacial period in, in, in Britain. And it was really funky. I mean, it was really incredible because it had a very similar climate to ours. It was a short-lasting period, about 130,000 to 115,000 years ago. So it only lasted about 15,000 years, which incidentally actually is longer than we've been out of the last glaciation. So I suppose in the human time frame, that is quite a long time. And during the Eemian, in the British Isles, we had all we had sort of very similar. Um, wildlife to what we've got today. We had like robins and blackbirds and magpies and hedgehogs and foxes and elephants and hippos and hyenas and lions and rhinoceri. Oh, oh yes, we, we had a megafauna. Yeah. 
as well as as well as all the things that we're we're familiar with and 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 you know and when i say a megafauna i mean not just a sort of little megafauna a really really mega megafauna including the straight tusked elephant which um made the african elephant look like a ballet dancer i mean this thing was a beast it was huge enormous creature with massive neck and shoulders and these extremely long tusks i mean in some cases almost as long as its body and um and then it had two there were two species of rhinos there were um hippos the same species as you get in africa today wallowing around in the thames valley in fact when they excavated um um, trafalgar square to put the lions in they found lots of bits of hippo and lion yeah. and elephant in, in, in the river gravels there. But, um, but you're selecting a period of time, you're selecting a period of time, obviously it's very exciting fauna, when the climate was warm and it was it was much better. It, 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 it was it was more or less exactly the same as today's climate. So, so I mean, some people argue this, that are, who are sceptical of the worries about uh, climate change and global warming. We say, well, look, the climate goes up and down and uh, there are good aspects and bad aspects. So the odd degree or two here or there we'll just have to cope with what what do you say to that so so i mean this you know this was some natural fluctuations i mean at the time there was only 280 parts per million of carbon dioxide mm. you know we're sort of way over 400 now um it's um 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 now before you go down the route of carbon dioxide the the mere fact that temperature was warmer yeah. It didn't prevent there being yeah. human life or well or, or a full animal life, uh, uh, biological life on the planet. That, uh, that yeah. well, well, it was scarcely warm. I mean, it's it's more or less the same temperature as today. But 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 um, yeah. I mean, and you know, at the moment we we're in a situation where the temperature is just climbing and climbing. There's you know, it's not going to be constrained no. in the near future by any natural cycle, and it's going to just push past. Lethal see, ab- see above under complexity theory, and uh, that's yeah, exactly that's what's going to happen. Right. All right, exactly. that's it. That's it. Anyway, um, but what was what's amazing about the Emian? I mean, it's like amazing in lots of ways, but um, this was a brief period when there were no people, uh, no, no, no um, members of the genus yeah. Homo. In 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 Britain, um, there had been uh, before the glaciation, before the Union, yeah. and of course there were after the glaciation. You know, in the Mesolithic, people came mm-hmm. back about twelve thousand years ago, but in in that period, there, there weren't any people, and it was before um, modern humans, Homo sapiens sapiens, had evolved, and and was um, and was really the sort of last glimpse of what things would be. You know, in the sort of state of nature, if you yeah. like, um, and and it's and and it, it what I what I find so interesting about it is that you know it, it sort of reminds us that megafaunas were everywhere. Yeah. You know, we we think of um, uh, we associate megafaunas with the tropics, you know, with a few places in Africa and Asia, but that's just because they've been wiped out everywhere yeah. else. But they there were elephants everywhere except in Australasia. Yeah. I mean, across the entire world, there were elephant species of different kinds. There were lions um, just about everywhere, rhinoceros just about everywhere, um, um, hippos um, across the, the whole old world. Um, in in other places, I mean, in Australia, had these monitor lizards, which were um, what they weighed three and a half tons, I think. Um, they had. Um, they had a a, a two ton wombat. They had a kangaroo that stood ten feet. They they had a, they had a marsupial lion. Obviously, yeah, obviously as, as humanity has uh, with its cleverness with tools and its uh, cooperation and language and so forth moves through this landscape and everything is destroyed in front of well, a lot of it is destroyed. Would there have been a way? Is could there have been a way where you could have kept? nature in a state uh, this glorious state and yet humanity found its place in it so there would be a population of was it giant wombats you could pick you know have one or two to eat every now and then but not kill all of them what were we doing wrong was what the george monbiot of of that time uh, from uh, i don't know homo erectus or whichever member of the genus could they have said look hang on don't don't kill those I would like to think so. I mean, the it, it, it's, it is the case that in every ecosystem you encounter, it's the large animals which are the most fragile. You, you know, you, you think of it the mm. other way around, don't you? You think, oh, those huge, great beasts, they yeah. would be the most robust, but they're always the first to yeah. go. And and it's it doesn't take a lot to tip the system. And, and, and in some cases, you know, they were just killed in huge numbers. But in other cases, 
you know, you would kill a certain amount of the prey, for example, and and the system would tip, or you'd remove the very large predators, you'd wipe those out, yeah. and there'd be a, a sort of counter-trophic cascade where the whole sure. system would fall apart because they'd gone. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, the, the, these big creatures are very fragile. And we're seeing this, in, for instance, in Africa today. You know, the elephants and the rhinos are under massive mm. pressure. They could easily be lost. Lions as well. Yeah. Um, and at sea with the large sharks. Um, I mean, the whales are recovering a bit, but now they're being hit by being tangled up in fishing gear and ingesting all the plastics and all the other toxins going into the sea. You know, the, the vulnerability is, is always intense when it comes to large creatures. Panthera leospelea is the cave lion, and it died out here in the UK between 12 and 14,000 years ago. From their remains, we know they're about 25% larger than our African lions, and they used to take down some serious prey, including bison, elk, and even our large deer species. We've even dug up their remains from underneath Trafalgar Square. Can you imagine the field day they'd have now with all those pigeons and tourists? So, although they've been gone for many thousands of years, Lions used to live wild right here in London. So your fifth wonder, your fifth wonder. So the f- fifth wonder is, is, is entirely from the human world. And this is um, um, the novel by Vasily Grossman, um, Life and Fate. Um, now, I'm, I've, 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 I'm an avid fan of Russian literature. And um, I know it's a big claim, but this is my favourite Russian novel. It's as if War and Peace had been written by Anton Chekhov. Um, <laughs> it's... Uh, it's it, it's it's just a magnificent work of art. I mean, it's a bit sort of chaotic, partly because not all of it has survived. Yeah. Um, it was it was suppressed um, 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 it, um, after he he wrote it. I think he finished it in 1959, and um, and the Soviet authorities weren't very pleased about it, um, and so they um, suppressed it. But uh, it was published in 1980. But you know, there was just a microfilm copy of it and there were bits missing from that. Mm. Um, but it tells um, the story of, of the, the, the siege of Stalingrad, yeah. um, but also just dips in and out of all these other stories going on at the same time in, in, in Moscow, in other parts of Russia, um, in Nazi concentration camps, um, other parts of the, of the front between the Germans and the Russians. And, um, and it's just this amazing panoramic view of life at the time with these extraordinary insights into um, dictatorship, um, totalitarianism, um, human cruelty, but also human kindness um, um, and and sort of the ability to come together, even in the most fraught circumstances to try to defend each other. Um, it's it's really just it is a wonder of the world. Yeah. It's quite amazing that one person could have produced yeah. this, and and there's a lot to learn in there. I mean, one of the things that came out of it for me that really hit home was this notion that the instinct to obey is stronger than the instinct to survive, and and I think you know yeah. that could almost be the sort of light motif of our our environmental crisis. You know, if if our survival instinct really did come top, yes. We wouldn't be hurtling down, down down this route, but we do what we're yes. told, and so we say, okay, you know, if you say we've got to keep um, burning fossil fuels, yeah, we'll do that. You know, we we don't question yeah. it, and and he really brings that out beautifully. Where even in this extreme totalitarian system, where your life is acutely at risk, you will obey yeah. first and, and survive um, second. I mean, it's a notable fact, isn't it, that. Uh, I mean, we're concentrating on perhaps the downside of uh, Russia at the moment, uh, uh, waging a war, uh, and it's had its problems over these, but it does produce these great works of literature. You've, you've, you know, you've mentioned Tolstoy and Chekhov along the way there, but uh, it, yeah. is there something in the Russian soul people talk of that, yeah. that they produce these great... Obviously, other languages and other societies produce great novels, but these are... If, if, you're, you know, if you were doing the great... You know, the seven greatest novels... You, Regularly, I'm sure, uh, Russian <laughs> right four of them will yes, be Russian. Exactly. Yes, exactly, and uh, yes, that's and right. that's despite most people having to come across it in translation or reading translation. Yeah, is, yeah. is there something about the Russian attitude to life, or is it because mm. of the horrors of Russia, the totalitarian, mm. you know, from the Tsars onwards? Uh, have, are you able to comment on that? Yeah, I, I I wish I could because you know, on the one hand. Uh, yeah, I was about to say, well, they see the big picture, but then I think of Chekhov's 
short stories, mm. which or, or, or Turgenev's for that yes. matter, which are very much about little moments, yeah. little sort of capsules of time. And just somehow there is this... This this feeling I get, I first had it reading Tolstoy, that it's as if someone's come along with a cloth and just cleaned the window and suddenly you can just see into yes. life. And, and and it's that that ability which um, he has, which uh, Turgenev definitely mm. has, Lermontov to an extent. Dostoevsky, we haven't. Um, Dostoevsky, <laughs> definitely. Yes, yes. Um, um, Pushkin, of course, you know, this... this an extraordinary ability, but but interestingly, actually, there is a sort of almost a mirror book um, published and also suppressed by by, by mm. the Soviets, written from the other side. Um, um, Heinrich Gerlich's um, uh, breakout at Stalingrad, right. which is written from 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 the German point of view, also a sort of dissenter, a sort of conscripted um, 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 soldier in 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 the um, in in Hitler's army. Um, who um, was um, sort of telling exactly the same story, also with a massive broad canvas and beautifully told. I mean, not quite the amazing wonder that life and fate is, but not far off. And to read the two together, uh, it's, it's almost as if they mesh. And so, you know, perhaps these properties aren't always exclusive to Russian literature, but it does... Yes. It does claim a big part of them. All right. Well, I, so I'm happy to move on now because we spent a lot of time on uh, these early uh, wonders. Let's right. let's see if we can do justice to your sixth wonder, uh, which is right. uh, which is Assyriologists, <laughs> and the, these are people who. Um, so these are human beings. These wonders, yes. um, and they're people who um, can who translate the ancient languages of Mesopotamia. In fact, it's a bit of a misnomer. They they're called Assyriologists, but they translate lots of different Mesopotamian languages yeah. and I first became uh, enraptured um, I, I, I felt wonder for them when I was um, researching the novel I haven't been written for haven't been writing for 20 years well, I was going to ask you about that <laughs> this is yet to be published <laughs> yeah yet to be yeah. published my genius remains unrecognized um, and and I went to meet this Assyriologist called Andrew George at the British Museum and and realized this guy could pick up a clay tablet written, uh, inscribed in cuneiform in Sumerian like 4,000 years ago and read it like you and I can read a newspaper. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you, 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 it's, it's a mind-blowing ability. It's just like how, you know, I know the human brain is pretty incredible, but how the hell do you do this? And, and there's, and it's, and Assyriology itself is full of the most magnificent stories, like sort of when George Smith, this um, self-educated man who left school at 14, translated Tablet 11 of Gilgamesh, which described the sort of precursor to Noah's flood. I mean, it, um, Utnapishtim, the um, Mesopotamian Noah, um, you know, it was it's exactly the same story as in the Bible. So obviously that's where it came from. And he, 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 was the first person to translate this and and apparently when he'd worked out what this tablet said he ripped off his clothes yeah. and, and ran around the, this reading room screaming yeah. while yeah. all these very staid people in, yeah. the, in their in, in, in their stiff collars were sort of like what what is going well, on uh, you reek out, but you but uh, it's sort of cracking a code uh, initially isn't it yeah. so, and i suppose yeah, exactly. once you've done it uh, you're you're through to the other side. You're through to the other side of the... Well, it's not quite as simple as that because because it's so... I mean, it, you know, especially Sumerian is, is a highly inflected language. So, you know, a, a symbol's meaning changes depending on yeah. the symbols either side of it. And there's incredible subtleties and complexities which are still being discovered to this day. And, of course, lots more clay tablets being found and being translated and yes. introducing new concepts it's it's it's, a, it's like a portal it's like it's like reading a, a sort of fairy tale where you pass through a portal from one world to yes. another that that's how it feels when i when i look at what these guys are doing i i i've cruelly while you're talking there i was just trying to find in my notes when I interviewed you on the radio, because I remember you saying, and I've got a note of it, that you were taking four months away from The Guardian, where you frequently write for, in order to <laughs> complete this novel, which I suppose is the same novel uh, that you just mentioned, a dark and depraved novel, which is becoming darker and more depraved by the day. If that, is that the same one we're talking about? Yeah, that, that's exactly the same one. Yeah, well, it's it's darkness and depravity on pause. <laughs> but you don't exactly suffer from writer's block because you, you're frequently no. writing mm -hmm. books about 
well soil and and uh, and the mm. wilding and you know that that's that sort mm. of thing uh, regularly writing yeah. books regularly writing columns and i'm i'm probably not even aware of some of your other uh, writings as well <laughs> so what what is it about fiction that is more challenging to you well it it it's it's just that it's never the priority yeah. it never feels urgent enough to put everything aside for and so and so i i did you know in that four months i i did get to sort of I wrote half the novel. It's half written. And well. it's it's really, you know, every time I finish a project, I say, right, now I'm going to finish a novel. And then something else comes along. Now I'm going to read something completely different. This is a piece of poetry. And in fact, it's the story of the flood in its Babylonian version, which, of course, everybody knows from the book of Genesis in the Bible. It's a very similar narrative. Ma lushtei takabbi. Shipra akkabuku shutsir so uh, Assyriologists, uh, uh, that's that's a, a marvelous thing to be able to to discover. Uh, it's a it's a way into an, another civilization, a previous time. Okay, we come to your last wonder, uh, if we may. Uh, your seventh yeah. and last. So I'm holding the last wonder in my hands. I, I know this is um, this is audio, yeah. but it's it's a it's a seashell, and it's about. Um, oh right, it's it's. A, I mean, I'm not. I don't want to sound disappointed. I was expecting something a bit bigger than that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not I a know. giant seashell. No, well, well, well. This is this is the thing that this is a very ordinary seashell, but an ordinary seashell is absolutely extraordinary. Mm. So this is um, this is a necklace shell, um, very common on the beaches around Britain. It's about two centimeters across. It's a sort of compact, tight little snail shell, um, quite quite robust i mean it's it's sort of it's not it's not heavy but it's still quite strong got a lovely little pattern on the top um this one makes its living by um drilling holes into other mollusks bivalve mollusks clams in this case and so often on the beach if you'll find a very neat little hole just be below the point of of a mollusk shell mm. um it's this thing which is sort of drilled into it with its um rasping drill like foot and then killed the bivalve and sucked out all the contents but what's amazing about this is what's amazing about all seashells is that this thing has been constructed at ambient pressure ambient concentrations and ambient temperatures mm -hmm. something no no human has ever been able to do so you make make this extremely complex very delicate but very strong structure largely from calcium carbonate and quite a lot of protein and various other things lots of layers in it um you know so so there's this sort of layer of mother of pearl nacre in the inside a layer of protein on the outside in between a matrix of protein and calcium carbonate which is both um aragonite and uh what's the other one? Oh, i can't remember anyway um it's it's this phenomenally delicate and 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 spare design and yet it's all done without any pressure any temperature any concentration other than what's just found in nature i mean we we've never been able to crack that you know if we make ceramics first of all you have to get a load of the same material all in the same place um and then you have to get a load of heat in order to fire it and yet you never make anything which is both as strong and thin as 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 this very ordinary seashell yeah. is. And why do you have that particular one? Uh, why did you just keep that one just as a reminder to you, or did, did you find it at some magic moment? Well, no, it's because it, in a way, because it is so ordinary, mm. but it's also like the transcendental form of seashells because it, it's it's this sort of such a neat little spiral it's got. It's a sort of very compact. Yeah, it is beautiful. Mm. When you look at it closely, it's beautiful, but it it's, doesn't stand out. No. But it's just like the quite wondrous, extraordinary things in what we just take, extraordinary nature of the ordinary, yeah. of things which we completely take for granted yeah. and, and don't recognise as being a miracle of nature. All right. Well, that, that's that's a charming uh, wonder to end on. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. Um, uh, and I just, I should, I suppose, say, uh, just to, to be polite apart from anything else, I was teasing you about not completing your novel. I did mention it in Basel, you write plenty of other things. I think your latest book would be Regenesis, Feeding the World Without Devouring the Planet. I think that's out about now. That's right. Yep, yep. It's um, it's, it's just being published now. So yeah. um, thank you and, for that. And uh, it's probably four or five books ago, you published a book called Feral, which is about rewilding, which again, it's a 
topic we've touched on in this in this discussion. Um, now um, I have to uh, select uh, the the wonder of wonders from your list of wonders, and I'd like, in a sentimental way, to pick this sea sh- sea shell, the sea snail shell, because it's a it's a thing, and you've obviously got a an enthusiasm for it. But as you say, it is just a an example of one of the many wonders of nature, and uh, and when humanity is wiped out by starvation, mass extinction applying to humans, global warming, wherever. There'll be, I suppose, lots of sea snail and in their shells and eventually a megafauna as well. So perhaps it is just a... And I, I think, uh, just to be serious about your wonders, and because it is such an extraordinary... It is such extraordinary substance, I think I'll make soil uh, the, the wonder of wonders that I'm going to pick from... Uh, you. I think I think... Apart from else, I think I could understand uh, what you were saying about that more <laughs> easily than some of your other topics. I had to bluff on, on the, the other ones a bit more. <laughs> no, you, well, you, you did it very convincingly. I was persuaded. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so anyway thank you very much uh, George Monbiot thank you for sharing your seven wonders with thank me you, if you enjoyed listening to my seven wonders it would be wonderful if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform site or provider you happen to find us on that would be great thank you very much for listening My Seven Wonders with Clive Anderson is a stack production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the ACAST Creator Network. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.